I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Merlino knows what it's like to search for information and resources for a loved one with a rare disease or yourself. She had two nephews who were diagnosed with the rare neuromuscular disease, Becker muscular dystrophy, and later she was diagnosed with the rare autoimmune condition, sarcoidosis. She now performs that search for information and resources professionally so others don't have to. Morlino today serves as Global Gene's Rare Concierge Patient Services Manager. The service serves as an entry point for patients, caregivers, patient advocates, and other rare disease stakeholders in search of information, resources, and connections. We spoke to Morlino about her own rare disease journey, the work she's doing as part of Global Gene's Rare Concierge Program, and the need she's addressing. Mary, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to share some information with you. We're going to talk about Global Gene Service Rare Concierge, how patients, caregivers, and healthcare providers use this service and what it does for people. Before we do that, though, I, I thought it would be useful to start with your own journey in the world of rare disease, which I think highlights a lot of the changes in the way people connect today and can access information. You had two nephews diagnosed with Becker's muscular dystrophy in 1998 at the age of 12 and 13. What was the family told about the condition when they were diagnosed? It's a great question. Um, we really weren't given a lot of information at that time. Um, we pretty much... After getting the genetic testing done, you basically told to work with your primary care physician and contact the MDA, Muscular Dystrophy Association. There really wasn't a lot of feedback about what to do. So that's what led us to investigating and doing some research on our own. What treatment options, if any, existed at the time? There really wasn't any. It was more just try to keep them safe and and um, watch the progression and, and stay on top of it. It was, unfortunately, there wasn't a lot of treatments available. This was at a time when the internet was new. The Orphan Drug Act had been around for a little more than a decade. And as you mentioned, you had an advocacy group that was present and active what was the landscape like for finding information and connecting with other families at the time? Well, fortunately, at that time, one of my sisters um, was dating a rheumatologist. So he was able to connect us to um, some information and um, people that we could talk to. And at that time, my sister, who was the mother of these children, was just trying to wrap her brain around the whole concept and was not in a position really to reach out to others. She just wanted to 
take care of her boys as best she could. Did you go to the library or look for information that way? Well, you know, it's a little tricky because um, I did some internet searching and to research as much as I can, but it's a difficult thing because sometimes when you're looking at the information, it's it's really scary and it's, it's um, difficult to share that information because my sister's processing this, this news and we wanted to protect the boys, but also we were kind of filtering the information of, of what we could all handle. Actually, it was let's gather as much information as we can learn what we can and share it as needed or as the capacity of my sister allowed. Fast forward to 2007 and you became a patient with a rare disease in search of a diagnosis. What happened to you? Yeah, my story was um, really interesting. I I collapsed, basically, at my sister's. I was visiting another sister. I have three total. Um, So I was visiting my sister in L.A., and I collapsed at her house. And I came to with my sister and the EMTs in the doorway. Um, I thought I had possibly had food poisoning. So I went to the bathroom and that's the last thing I remember. Um, So I ended up spending a week in the hospital getting all kinds of tests and they had no answers for me. They just said, something happened with your heart. We don't know what it is, what caused it. And um, they sent me home. And it was uncomfortable because that time, as I said, I was visiting my sister And um, I said, I have to fly back to Switzerland with my young children. They were seven and nine at that time. And the doctors said, well, you know what? We'll give you a Valium. You'll be fine. And I was very uncomfortable with that. But what option did I have? I knew I needed to get back home. I needed to get my kids back home. And it was very disconcerting to think, okay, I don't know what's happening and I don't know if it's going to happen again. So anyway, I, I went back home and um, the next day I couldn't climb a flight of stairs without feeling like I was going to pass out. So I ended up dropping my kids off with a friend and driving myself to the emergency room, spent a week in that hospital, lots of tests, still no answers. They sent me home. The next day, I could barely get out of bed. My husband at the time took me to a different hospital, and that's where they told me I needed a pacemaker. And mind you, this was in Switzerland, and they were speaking French, so (laughs) this is almost amusing, almost, because I'm trying to communicate with them in French, and I'm trying to explain, no, no, you don't understand, because a pacemaker in English is a device for old people, (laughs) and I was 41 and healthy. So there was an interesting conversation. So um, ended up being in that hospital for another week, got the pacemaker and continued my life. I recovered from that and um, had to modify some of my behavior and activities, but basically recovered and I was okay for a while. And then um, we moved back to the United States in 2011 and got a new team of cardiologists and pulmonologists and and, um he 
went and did a lot of testing, couldn't still couldn't figure out what was wrong with me or wrong with my heart. And so we were on that path again of trying to find what caused it. At the same time, we had figured out a way to deal with the situation of my heart. So the pacemaker was working. So I ended up going and getting a lung biopsy. And that's when they told me I had sarcoidosis, cardiac sarcoidosis. And of course, I had never heard of that disease before. And um, within a week, they had upgraded my pacemaker to a biventricular pacemaker defibrillator because of this diagnosis. And thankfully, they did. And because six months later, I had a cardiac arrest in my kitchen. Had it not been for that diagnosis, I would not have qualified to get a defibrillator. And if I didn't get that defibrillator, I would have died in my kitchen with my 15-year-old daughter watching and experiencing that and having that as her life experience. For listeners not familiar with sarcoidosis, briefly, what is it? Sarcoidosis is a systemic disease, which basically means it can affect any system in your body. And it's an immune response where your body is attacking itself, similar to autoimmune, but they are still doing more research on it. And basically what happens is cells collect, groups of cells are collecting your body in a response as an immune response. And these groups of cells of cells are called granulomas. And these granulomas attached to your your body in whatever system they choose to go in and when they are part of that in the system they block the blood flow and the functioning of those organs and with me it was mostly in my heart so it did irreversible damage to my heart it severed my av node which is the communication center from the top of the heart to the bottom of the heart. So I, I am 99% eight dependent on my pacemaker. So these granulomas basically went into my heart and blocked the blood flow and damaged it. It's irreversible. And because it took that long to get the diagnosis, there was significant damage to my heart. Had I been diagnosed when I first collapsed or at any point before that, seven-year diagnostic odyssey, the disease progression would have been very different. And um, I might have a better quality of health, um, you know, a lot of things like the expense, the many different aspects that um, how this disease affected my life would have been vastly different. And that's part of the reason why I'm so passionate and committed to the rare disease community is because when I really understood how important a diagnosis is, then it really motiva- motivated me to, to do something about it and to try to prevent other people from going through a similar experience. I take it in looking for information about your new diagnosis, it was a somewhat different world than it was when you went looking for information about your nephew's diagnosis. What did you do to, to find out about the disease? Well, of course I Googled it. Um, so I Googled, Googled it and it brought me to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. 
and um, I, I explored everything they had on their website. I looked at medical research. I dug deep because I just wanted to learn as much as I can. And it was a bit frightening to tell you the truth because cardiac sarcoidosis is rare within the rare. So sarcoidosis is a rare disease affecting, as I said, any part of the body. But the people who have cardiac sarcoidosis, there's only 5% of the sarcoidosis patients have it in their heart. So it was even rarer. And I, the initial research that I did told me that I had about five years to live. And um, that was really terrifying, to be honest. And so I just kept digging. I'm like, there has to be something else. There must be something I can do. So connecting with the Foundation of Sarcoidosis Research was great. They had great information. And um, I was able to connect with other people who had this disease and learn about it from them. And um, yeah, I just kept digging and learning as much as I can about the disease and how I could you know, theoretically be the best patient in the land. What do I need to do to try to get past that five-year mark? All of this was as as background on who you are and the experiences you had for what you're doing today. Your, what is your role at Global Genes with Rare Concierge? I am the, I am the Rare Concierge Patient Service Manager. Basically, I oversee the um, inquiries that come into Global Genes from patients, patient advocates, caregivers, and um, whoever has questions about their disease or the rare disease space, and I respond to them, and I provide the information, resources, and connection to, to the people who reach out to us. And um, I do other things within Global Genes, um, sharing my patient experience and the work I have done and um, the knowledge I have from that experience. For listeners not familiar with the service, can you explain what exactly it does and the range of questions that might be directed towards the, the program? Absolutely. It's really easy to access. This is a free program, and it's basically a free service that you can access through the website. You go into the website, and you click on Connect, and you go to Patient Services. There's a form that people can fill out and asks you some basic questions and provides a free field for you to be able to elaborate a little bit more on what your situation is. And you send that in. And it comes to me, and I triage these responses based on pri- what the priorities might be, if, it's a, if it needs immediate attention or if it needs escalation, because um, some of the questions that come in are more complex and beyond my experience. So I escalate those to my um, coworkers, the other people on my team. But getting back to the what we cover... You can ask us anything, and I um, we outline some of the some of the areas that we can provide resources to. So it's anything from financial resources or or how to navigate disability, um, clinical trials, how to get genetic testing, how to start a patient advocacy group, uh, where to get mental health support. 
I mean, the whole gamut, whatever it happens to be. And, and this is available to anyone. It's, and it even includes people who are undiagnosed because that population really has a lot of questions and they're looking and searching for answers. So we cover the whole gamut of where people are on their rare disease experience from the very beginning and, and also to the point where sometimes people get that initial information and they're good for a while. And then they contact us and they're like, you know what, I want to do more advocacy. How do I get involved in legislative advocacy? I can guide them on that. So then I'm, I'm ready to be part of research. How do I find clinical studies? Where can I learn more about this and, and participate? Or how can I support my patient organization to help them get research ready? So wherever people are on that spectrum, on that continuum of their lived experience with rare disease, we have resources, information, and connection that we can provide and and support people throughout that process. One of the biggest things, which I'm sure a lot of your people will understand, having a rare disease can be very lonely and it can be very scary. And we like to provide support for people and keep that open door. So if you have a question now, or even if you don't have a question right now, it's helpful, I think, for people to know that we are there. We are there to support you and help you on your journey. Whatever it is you happen to need, let us know. And I'm a strong believer in no dead ends. It's if you have a question, if I don't have the answer and I, you know, tap into the other people at Global Genes and and I tap into my internal resources and the external ones that I I collect, I'm still going to do my best to get you closer to the answer that you need or that connection that you need. Is there any special training people who work in rare concierge receive? That's a good question. For myself, um, although my education and training was in sports medicine and athletic training, which I do not participate in anymore, I consider my life experience as a rare disease patient an active advocate in the legislative space and also the founder of Maryland Rare, to be extremely helpful. My own experiences have brought me a wealth of knowledge that I want to share to help improve the experiences for other people. So I have a little bit of physiology and um, background, and so I understand some of that. And I also did a lot of teaching and coaching. So I have that type of experience. But my coworkers um, on the team, the patient services team, um, one is a bilingual genetic counselor and another one is a geneticist. So as I had mentioned before, when I get cases or questions that are too involved and beyond my scope, I share with them so they could bring their um, expertise and knowledge into this space to be able to respond to those questions. Because there's a lot of genetic questions and that's a little bit out of my realm and I have no problem sharing that with somebody else for them to give the, you know, accurate, helpful information that they need. You mentioned that this is a free service. Is it available to anyone anywhere? Yes, anyone anywhere. 
Um, and you can get it, you know, access it through the website. You could also email uh, careaboutrare at globalgenes.org. And a lot of times when I'm at different functions um, in the rare disease space, and actually throughout my life, if if people have some questions, they can let me know, give me their email address, and I, and I can connect them to a way for us to be able to put them in, in, a, in theory, into the system for us to be able to provide an answer to those questions. So it's available to anyone. Our main focus is usually the patient, patient organization, caregivers, care providers. Um, we do get healthcare providers asking questions. So yeah, anybody can ask. And how far is its reach? How many different countries have you served patients in and and do you do this only in English? Uh, well, last year we had 44 different countries reach out to us. And this year we're already at 46. So when it's, you know, at this time, it's, it's only May. Um, and as I mentioned before, um, one of my colleagues is bilingual, bilingual with Spanish. So that helps a great deal. I have some French background, which does help somewhat. Other than that, we are looking into options for interpretation and providing translations for people. Right now, we're trying to build out the system and um, be able to provide that. But mostly everything is done in English, to be straightforward with you. It'd be great if we could find a way to provide all languages, but it's, it's a heavy lift at this point. And we're, we're, we're looking into it to see what our capacity, what we could possibly do. I know you address questions from people at all stages of the rare disease journey, but I'm curious if you can give some sense on the, the types of questions that are most common. Yeah, good question. Well, we actually, one of the things that we do with um, the program is we collect a lot of data. And in that, if somebody reaches out to us, are they male or female? And um, what is their disease? And, um, you know, what are they asking for? They What are they inquiring about? And we collect this information to help us inform what the needs are of the community and make sure that we have those resources. And if we don't, then we go find them and we collect them and, and have that. So when people reach out to us, it's really very informative to kind of take the pulse of the community and it can change throughout the year. So I would still say the biggest one is financial resources. Um, the financial impact of living with a rare disease in your family or as an individual is very significant um, between insurance and the inability to work, the challenges of living with a rare, rare disease or being a caregiver, the financial impacts um, are very widespread. So financial resources big, as is disability information. Uh, a lot of it is connecting to people. I get people all the time just saying, I just got diagnosed with this disease. I don't know anything about it what can you do? A, a lot of the questions are that simple and basic. Like they just are reaching out 
and, and trying to get some help. So connection, um, a lot for clinical studies and research. What's the newest news in my disease space? Um, mental health has been a big one recently, and I'm just really happy to see that people are asking, asking for that support. I, I think people would expect you to be getting questions from caregivers and, and, and patients. I, I think people may be surprised about 10% of the inquiries come from healthcare professionals. What types of information are they seeking? I think it's great, actually, that we do have healthcare professionals reaching out because it's, you know, it's really impossible for them to be able to have all the information for the over 10,000 rare diseases that are out there. So if they have that ability to reach out and ask for help, I think that um, shows a lot of integrity in those healthcare providers. And, and sometimes they don't know what, what information they, you know, they might need for their patients. And so sometimes it is, are there um, patient organizations for, for this patient of theirs? Um, and a lot of times people are looking for you know, the, the healthcare providers are looking for additional support for their patients and to learn more and to understand what it is that Global Genes can provide for their patients. So um, we do get a lot of that. I, I, you know, sometimes the patients, the, um, the healthcare providers are so focused on identifying the disease and finding the treatments that they don't have the additional information that they might need to have more comprehensive care or um, be more aware of what is out there that can support their patients. Do you ever get unusual requests? Anything that surprised you? Yeah, I guess part of me feels like nothing would surprise me <laughs> anymore. I think the... The, the inquiries that have really the most impact for me are those people who you know are at this point of desperation. And I've had inquiries where people have reached out and all they've said is, I need help. Please help me. Please help my child. And that it's sad. It's really, really heartbreaking to know that these people are in such a horrible place that they're just casting out this wide net for help because some of the information is not available or especially for rare diseases. It can be, you know, one person has this disease. It could be two. It could be hundreds. But when you get these diseases that are ultra rare and there's really not a lot of research, it's that's, I would say, it's not so surprising, actually, but it is um, notable and it's just, it's difficult for these people. And I, I, my heart breaks for them all the time. Are there a couple of examples you can offer on how the service helped people? Sure. Um, there's one that was great that... Um, we had somebody who reached out to us and um, they had done, they had been in the rare disease space for a while and, but they were in the undiagnosed space, I should say. And this was a caregiver who was um, taking care of their child. They had done genetic testing, but they had just 
wanted to know if there was anything else available. And they connected with um, my coworker, who's a genetic counselor. And after speaking and connecting with them over time, they were able to learn more about each other, each other and find out like what it is that they were seeking. And this person actually ended up participating in the patient advocacy summit that was last year. And after the summit, um, my coworker had given advice about, well, you know what, have you had your genetic testing redone? And a lot of people don't know that they can do that, that they, if they had genetic testing, um, if it was a long time ago, a lot of the technology has changed. So it was helpful information to know that you can retest or you can revisit your genetic test because there are VUSs, VUs, or variants of unknown significance. And there may, the progress that scientists and researchers have made might be able to give more information. So that was basically what happened was she encouraged her to retest. And after that, they got a diagnosis, which they hadn't hadn't, you know, been able to to get beforehand. And so it's great to see that the information, the education that we can provide helps to provide better access to care and a, a diagnosis. So that that one was great. And I've had other ones where I had someone who wrote back to me after I, she had asked questions and um, they had said um, that they had been living with this condition for over 30 years and having regular treatment, but they had never received any new information in 30 years. So much has changed with the you know science and technology and the, how much we've learned and this person, you know, they, they weren't receiving that. So she was so grateful to be able to um, have new information to work with and to share with her doctors. And I always encourage people to continue working with their care team, their doctors, and to share the information I've given them. Because sometimes this is, you know, the, it's, it's hard to find the information. So that was another one that was great. Um, you no, know, we've had a had a lot, and uh, you know, it's 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 nice to know that people have been able to connect and improve their li their lived experience, their daily life. What, just to get that information, and and also so that people know that there's others out there that care and can support them, and that they are not alone. It's it's I feel it's really important for people to understand that. Global Genes has been putting an increasing emphasis on health equity issues. What's being done to reach underserved communities with the service? Well, that's one of our main focuses this year is along with mental health and um, research readiness. The other one is equity. And it's been a really big topic area of understanding that we have been doing um, a lot of work in for the past couple of years. And we have some new things coming up, but some of them um, I'm looking forward to, um, to be discussed at the health equity, um, with the health equity forum that's right before the um, summit this year. And we are working with other partners to make sure that we are 
are doing our best work and supporting the work they're doing to help improve access for the underserved. And um, we're really, we've been working with the RDDC for um, a, a program called Know Your Family History. And so we have that going on. There are other projects we are working on, or as I would say, my coworker Shruti would say, we have a lot of things cooking. So um, we're learning a lot and we're providing, you know, well, for, for my end, there's a lot of resources that I've been able to gather to provide for people that they may not be aware of, but there's a lot of things cooking and I'm looking forward to some of those that we'll be discussing and working with, with the um, health equity forum that's coming up in September. Beyond that, what's in store for the program over the next year? What's being done to expand it? We're working on, let's see, making sure that we can provide this service to as many people as possible. We're building out the the resources, the accessibility, the um, the structure of it, because, you know, as many things say now, does it scale? And we're making sure that it does scale because the further we reach out, the more we learn about the the rare disease community and their needs. So we are doing a lot of internal work with making sure that our um, operational functions of the program are working as well as working on reaching those communities that, that um, are underserved, whether it's, um, you know, people who are rural and um, have difficulty accessing information. That's um, one of the things that we are focusing on. And um, basically we're trying to grow it and make sure that people know that we are there for them because there's a lot of people that, you know, we, we do, there's a lot of people that still need support. And so we have some outreach planned for um, coming up and we're looking forward to expanding and solidifying the program and what we can provide for people. Mary Bellino, rare concierge patient services manager for global genes, Mary, thanks so much for your time today. Hold on. <coughs> Sorry. Sorry. Almost made it. <coughs> <laughs> Mary Merlino, Rare Concierge Patient Service Manager for Global Genes. Mary, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And um, thank you for what you're doing. I've been listening your, to your podcast since I was first diagnosed as well. So I, I know that this you provide a great service and information for the community, and I thank you for that. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, 
on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.